You are listening to the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. Ravi Sahu is the founder and CEO of Strayos, a VC-backed computer vision and deep learning company that's improving the mining industry by using 3D aerial intelligence to reduce cost and to improve safety by providing highly accurate data. In this episode, Ledge and Ravi discuss the importance of creating a culture of customer empathy and how that focus has allowed for better feedback and understanding from their clientele. Ravi also discusses how the Strayos internship program works to develop talented engineers and shares a few specific tips on how to stay connected with your remote teams. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Here's Ledge's conversation with Ravi Sahu. Ravi, thanks for joining us. Really cool to have you. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Can you give you know two or three minute intro of uh, yourself and your work? Let the audience get to know you a little bit. Absolutely. Myself, Ravi Sahu, and I'm the founder and CEO of Estreos. And my background is in uh, enterprise software. I've been building uh, software from last uh, uh, 14 years. Uh, uh, graduated as computer science degree from India, and then uh, worked for uh, different Fortune 500 companies globally. Uh, from last, uh, you know, uh, in Europe, Canada, and from last eight years in U.S. Uh, I started Estreos with a passion of like my old um, work that I was doing, which is in the data and the machine side, and bringing that to the new industries like uh, heavy industries, um, more especially the mining. And uh, with that, Estreos, what we are doing is um, we are transforming how the uh, mining operations gets done in the drilling and blasting, utilizing... uh, uh, IoT data, the sensors, as well as the drones. Uh, so we have built a platform. Uh, it's a 3D visual intelligence platform using artificial intelligence and drones to reduce drilling and blasting costs that happens on a mining site on a daily basis. That's amazing. So many places to go with that. How or why did you get into mining? You know, how did how did that even come up, and where did you see like the opportunity for the technology? Yeah, yeah, that, that's 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 an interesting question because I don't come from mining uh, industry, and neither there is no background, you know, uh, where I was earlier exposed to any uh, mining uh, industry. Uh, so uh, how I stumbled into it is is basically kind of the problem, right? You know, uh, the problem that got me excited, and uh, the way I stumbled into the problem is. Uh, I had an early prototype about just a computer vision where uh, I was just uh, I started as a side project to just kind of you know, uh, uh, taking the images, reconstructing 3D models. So it was just a side project um, uh, that I was working on. Um, during that time, uh, I was also pursuing an MBA degree uh, in Washington University of St. Louis. And uh, one of the innovation project was to basically uh, come up with an idea and uh, uh, build a business in two days. Um, And uh, uh, I submitted this with a group of my other teammates. And um, fortunately, one of the uh, team members had a mining background from last 30 years where he sold his last business uh, on the the blasting side. So when he saw my first prototype, he said, wow, this... uh, is this just a side project or you're doing something else with it? And so this is a side project. 
but this can be taken uh, and he said that this can be taken to the mining industry and there's a lot of potential use cases here uh, that he can immediately apply and he had he explained me the problem i was not convinced but then we started like talking to real customers or real industry partners and they said this is a real problem for us and if we can do something about it that's um, that would be that would move the industry forward so the more I kind of dived into it and the more I talked to customers and the real understood the real pain, I felt that now this is not just a side project. I need to do something about it and make it, uh, you know, solve the real problem here. And that's how I uh, got into the mining industry, started visiting the real mining sites and real, you know, how uh, the jobs gets done. Uh, so, so from last two years, it's been an amazingly crazy journey of, uh, learning everything about drilling and blasting, learning everything about mining and, uh, uh, you know, geeking out with, you know, how, what's the rock mechanics and geotechnical attributes, you know, and how, what we can do in the, with that uh, in building uh, algorithms to get them better results. That's amazing. It's like the perfect entrepreneurial story, you know, didn't even know you solved the problem and then people really want to pay money for it. Yeah. I love that. Uh, you and I talked about, you know, previously off mic about the way that that you sort of have a unique program where you you train through internships and you have uh, field time, you know, for the the software engineers. I, I would love if you talked about that because I think a lot of times there's a, a difficulty in in getting engineers, uh, software engineers, particularly close to the customer, and, and that's not even in domains that are you know, sort of advanced and in the field as, as mining. But, uh, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Because I think that that learning is really important for anyone who has a customer focused problem in engineering team. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, um, uh, that's what we, what we see, uh, in this industry, it's not just about, uh, building a product and, um, uh, understanding you know how users use this product but also having a sense of empathy about how these users goes through and when they are using the product and how much um, how much basically this problem uh, what we are solving it's cutting down their you know uh, that the time that they're spending in the mining site but also removing them from the harm's way right so and also having uh, an empathy towards um, their their job and so that's why it's not just about like hiring the engineering talent who are uh, who are great in building products, but also uh, finding this talent who who cares about like going into the field, uh, spending you know time with the real users, and uh, these users are boots literally boots on the ground working day in and day out um, in the mining and quarry side. Uh, they're pretty smart people. They're pretty uh, well tech oriented and they come from engineering background, but um, that's the part of the uh, job that, you know, this, um, they're removed basically. Uh, uh, a lot of the time they don't get a ch uh, chance to talk to the actual uh, technology people who are, who are building and writing this product or building this hardware for them. Right. So there's a, a lot of like, you know, uh, connection is not there and that's what we think is is important when we when we started to build build out this product that uh, we need to do this um, in a way that you know we are embedded with them 
and when when we started seeing this happen, we uh, we were very aligned what uh, not only the users want, but we see a greater adoption of our uh, product itself. So how what we did is uh, instead of just hiring the engineering talent um, in a way that uh, we go out um, look for uh, candidates in the job boards or you know uh, source out through the recruiters, uh, we we started doing a, a program um, basically. Uh, uh, an internship mentor program, which means uh, and in through various um, uh, universities, you know, we started to you know partner with them and basically uh, bringing in the interns and going through the usual uh, training instead of um, just um, uh, platform-driven training what we do, uh, but also you're going to go through like entire domain knowledge training. And if you feel, then you feel really passionate about being associated with this industry, then you are the right fit for us to be uh, converted to, you know, full time. And that's where we have seen the um, really great results in uh, uh, from the talents who not only are good in building the products, but also aligning with domain, but also having, uh, they see that, you know, there is what I'm building is actually changing people's life on the field. Uh, and they see the greater impact and those are the great talent for us then. Great, great. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that because you can really develop that customer empathy from the ground, you know, literally from the ground in your case, yeah. uh, not even metaphorically. Yeah. Uh, so for all of our, you know, super technologist listeners, uh, particularly on the, you know, ML and, and AI side, can you talk about the, the technology, the, the stacks that you use, the way you actually you know, deploy this stuff sort of uh, from from code to field? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we, from the uh, technology stack perspective, uh, how we deliver uh, the product is uh, uh, through the cloud-based software as a service. And um, our, uh, um, our front end is in the AngularJS, you know, the, the latest version of AngularJS. Um, and uh, the back end is uh, Ruby and Python. Um, we uh, we basically use um, uh, GraphQL APIs as an engine, and then um, we deliver high uh, advanced JS like assets, which is basically 3D data. Um, so we built our own um, uh, 3D uh, rendering uh, applications to deliver these uh, large assets uh, in uh, via browser, um, and then. From the data processing perspective, uh, the image processing that happens when um, when we are acquiring the data uh, through drones or through any other sensors, uh, camera sensors, uh, we have built uh, the entire stitching engine um, on C++. Uh, and uh, after that, any segmentation and classification machine learning pipeline is in uh, Python at the moment. So we use a variety of other frameworks and uh, machine learning tools. Uh, so uh, mostly TensorFlow and uh, Keras. Uh, that's kind of you know our stack uh, looks like, and we use some open source components as well um, on the uh, JS side as well as uh, some Python uh, libraries there. So as the founder and you you know you sort of had to grow up the company. It started with your technology, I imagine. You've moved into, you know, engineering leadership and, you know, company leadership and business, you know, and all those things. How's it been moving away from maybe spending all your time in code and delegating that? And how, how do you manage the growth of the engineering team? Yeah, so we, we started, um, you know, I started kind of, you know, uh, 
as a as a lone wolf kind of thing, right? You know, where uh, I was doing everything, but you know, I I like building products, so I was, you know, really passionate about not letting it go. Uh, that you know, I need to do everything and like you know, get involved in each little details. So that was the hardest transition for myself, uh, going from each little details of the product to like now um, letting it. Um, really talented people and smart people do their like you know job um uh and and trusting you know what they are building and what decisions that they are making uh it's great uh for the technology and the architecture itself uh so uh from answering your question about how do we kind of you know looking from the growth perspective is uh early starting um like i mentioned even um from the internship talent perspective as well as um the uh, leadership uh, team that we hired on the product and the technology uh, we we had a mindset about like you know uh, proposing uh, like coming up with a proposal and approach and uh, see how um, how we, how would they do if they would actually propose that uh, for their own um, uh, company treating that as their own company and how would that you know turn out uh, so uh, building that like micro uh, entrepreneurship within themselves uh, that is an idea we uh, we had uh, in the company that if you are proposing this architecture, if you are building this module, um, you go and run completely independently and have uh, create a micro team. Maybe you know bring have another person working with you and deliver this product or deliver this you know a small feature. Even it doesn't matter who where you are, whether you are just an intern or whether. Uh, you just join the company or whether you're a junior developer uh, and that kind of you know gives the sense of responsibility and the impact uh, that they can see immediately uh, and that's what um, uh, kind of have has, um, have let me kind of you know scale uh, the engineering talent uh, you know uh, fast uh, so um, I think it's mostly about what they see that they, the impact has been great so that helps like creating um, that is scale fast and and through that uh, process, what we have found is the same uh, talent, they go and find different, uh, you know, another talent or like, you know, bring in more um, uh, engineering, you know, sources, you know, from that. So it's mostly about what I realize is uh, when they start to see that, you know, how much, uh, not just the independent uh, uh, flexibility and independence they have in uh, working uh, on the stack, but also like seeing the impact immediately uh, we see that um, that basically the circle feeds uh, itself, right? Uh, in terms of the scale and the engineering growth. What are some really nasty engineering problems that took longer to solve than you hoped? Some places, just big speed bumps, you know, in in the journey. So I think we all get wrapped up in remembering the best stories. What are some of the just crazy things that you had to solve that just didn't go well? Oh yeah, I have lots of those, by the way. So we made a lot of mistakes, and uh, but I think we 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 have learned from it. And uh, one of the uh, one of the biggest, I think, um, uh, speed bump, I would say, um, that almost derailed um, our uh, product roadmap. It was in January 2018, so almost a year ago. Um, uh, we 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 decided to do an um, architecture. Uh, change basically complete shift of how we deliver uh, the data uh, 
So it was more of uh, going through an enterprise uh, architecture mode. Uh, we, we built first version of product as you always kind of, you know, hear from everybody that the first version of product works great. Uh, but as you kind of approach towards the bigger uh, enterprises, they have different requirements. They want different workflows. So um, the second year mark, we decided to kind of, you know, tweak our uh, architecture, but also not tweaking our architecture, but also completely uh, creating an enterprise workflow where any size of data can be onboarded, uh, any number of uh, users uh, can create internal workflows. Uh, that was the idea, what we called as the, the site-based architecture. Uh, and uh, that was a massive undertaking in itself uh, to just re-architect, you know, few whole thing. Um, and also uh, use different uh, stack as well from moving from Angular uh, 1 to kind of completely new version of the Angular. Uh, and then other like, you know, new uh, upgrades there. And the way we started approaching is uh, we thought that uh, everything would work great, this architecture. Well, we didn't realize that um, uh, the way we designed the workflows and the architecture um, we were onboarding almost the users. Um, the users were pushing in almost uh, under one site, uh, basically what we call as the different different mining site. Under one site, they were pushing uh, 50, 60 data sets per day. Um, and then you have to visualize that entire 50 data sets in one geolocation and each data size is about like two gigabytes. Uh, and so you can, you can see that um, you know 15 to tw uh, two, uh, 20, like you know almost like 100 gigabytes of data that you have to visualize as it's loading uh, instantly. That was the enterprise workflow that anybody can come in and visualize whatever they have done the projects instantly. It will load. That was the idea. Uh, well, it didn't it didn't work. It started like failing, uh, started crashing things, and um, uh, we we started to figure out that, you know, why is it happening in this way? Uh, so we have to almost uh, spend uh, about like one and a half month uh, tweaking that whole thing and uh, writing various compression uh, algorithms uh, to, you know, take care of that first. Uh, and we basically went back to like the users that, you know, we are not ready uh, to kind of get uh, this new workflows, uh, a new architecture out, uh, and we have to hold it off. So uh, almost uh, one and a half month of gap was there to just uh, let uh, uh, users either use the old version of the product or wait for this to release. So your, your culture of customer empathy, I wonder how did that help you present that news to customers and they were willing to still stay on board because if you hadn't had that and you didn't develop those relationships with customers, maybe they wouldn't have been as willing to remain on board. Did that happen? Did you find the relationships were valuable? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in this industry, I think the, the relationships uh, is, is the prominent, uh, you know, part in, um, in basically exchanging or doing any transactions. Um, so that definitely helped. They were uh, they were generous enough to not only uh, wait but also give their feedback and feedback in a way that uh, during this time we were constantly trading and they were uh, giving their time to test it out as well. Uh, so um, that that helped us in um, 
not only uh, encountering other types of you know mistakes that could have gone when it would have been completely live uh, during that you know one and a half month period. So uh, the empathy plays definitely an important role here, uh, especially at least played for us you know over the last two years. Sure. Yeah. The way you treated customers to begin with, I'm sure made a huge difference. That's, that's really fantastic. I'm sure you're glad you, you made that investment. Um, one question I love to ask all the technology leaders that I interview is, you know, so at, at gun.io, obviously we're in the business of, of finding and vetting and you know, retaining the very best engineers. So 10 plus years of production experience. Uh, you know, many, many code examples, able to pass all the tests, able to have all the soft skills and great communications and excellent remote work. And, uh, you know, we have a pretty complicated rubric for measuring those things and some heuristics that we keep track of in our process. Uh, and yet, you know, we know that there's always other best practices and, and every tech lead I talk to, I love to know what are your heuristics for hiring engineers? How do you know that you have the very best people? What do you measure? Um, and, you know, what characteristics and skills are you paying attention to? Yeah. Uh, at uh, Strios and especially um, the way kind of, you know, I uh, think about hiring. Uh, and now uh, I have also my uh, my colleagues and, you know, uh, the engineering leads, you know, they they participate in the hiring decisions now. But I think the hiring great people is really difficult. Uh, it's so difficult, you know, to find great people, let alone like hire them, right? So uh, the heuristics that I have is basically um, the first things, um, the the skills um, and um, uh, the tech stack and the, the past projects, it all sounds great. But I think the, the biggest thing that I kind of look for is how hungry they are in learning things. Uh, if they are able to, if I give them two days and a problem to solve, and we're not looking to get the problem to be solved itself, but also what I'm looking is how much they have learned in these two days. And that's what I look for when I hire an, um, anybody new uh, or you know, when, when I'm making my hiring decisions, because what we are working and materials, a lot of the things is new, and a lot of the things I don't expect anybody to come to know everything when they're coming on board. But what I'm looking is basically a learning ability in in uh, how they learn and what how they are using that learning uh, to create something in a you know, limited period of time. Uh, so that's one uh, key item, and then, then the second is basically like aligning with our uh, you know value system. Um, because um, it's, the value system doesn't have to be kind of, you know, the same, but it's mostly kind of, you know, alignment. Uh, that's what we are doing. So I look for kind of, you know, cues. And um, um, when, when, we, when we talk, um, so those are the things I, I, I look for that, you know, whether they would uh, align uh, within the team or, um, you know, there would be, you know, you know how much the, the culture fit is there. Have you experimented at all with uh, remote? work or is it all on site? No, in, in fact, we have remote team members. Uh, and uh, we, for the first year, we, we didn't have, you know, a uh, remote team. Uh, but uh, the, the second year, as we kind of, you know, is scaling, 
we uh, we have experimented, uh, not only experimented, but we have uh, uh, built remote team um, as well as uh, um, we, have, we have learned lessons building remote team as well. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and I think um, uh, there is always a good balance uh, keeping uh, on-site team and the remote team uh, and how to like, you know, really uh, scale within the model uh, because remote teams, I think uh, even though past uh, 14 years, I've worked for Fortune 500 companies and I've worked remote teams all my life uh, in my career. Uh, I think for the startup, I had the hardest time building remote team. So what are some of those lessons? You know, uh, obviously this is, I think this is a mandate at this point. A company's, yeah. you know, there just isn't going to be enough talent at all. Forget about enough talent locally. So uh, what, are, what are the lessons? You know, people are going to have to face this. What have you learned? Yeah, uh, so the, the lessons, couple, I think, I, um, I, it's just experience. I won't say like, you know, it's a lesson for everybody here, but I think it's, uh, my experience is the remote team part is, uh, uh, again, r really treating them as a part of um, the team that they are with you. Um, and uh, when we are interviewing them it's, uh, at the same time, uh, during the interview process or during the onboarding process, they need to feel that uh, they are not a remote team member only be, only that they are like not, not, uh, only they're not uh, in the same place. They are just in a different office. That's what I think. If, they, if we can develop those type of feeling, um, uh, I think the remote team uh, culture, you know, is successful. We uh, we do basically. Uh, the standups are great, but I think the other things that needs to happen is uh, uh, um, organizing basically uh, a weekly lunch uh, for them. Uh, even though I am remote, but you know we can do uh, lunch for the, uh, them uh, uh, from here. Uh, and uh, and that's part I think uh, uh, a lot of the th times even when we are in the same place uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, so that's uh, it's kind of more uh, bonding activity, and that uh, uh, that is important for uh, uh, building a remote team. Uh, communication, like we uh, various tools that can be uh, collaborate, but I think if we don't use them right, I think that's uh, a part of the problem uh, as well. That's we we had some issues uh, earlier when we were not using them right. Um, and again, I think that the remote part is. Um, uh, having a uh, having a sense of understanding that um, uh, what's the uh, what's basically the uh, ideal scenario or an ideal working hours for them and respecting those uh, you know, boundaries because uh, just because they're remote they're not available like you know all the time to answer the questions you know or the chat uh, uh, and uh, uh, and empowering them with like more and more um, responsibilities in terms of like the impact, what impact they're gonna um, be making. And uh, the one thing that we have started to do is uh, for the remote teams uh, as well. Uh, if we are doing a, maybe uh, a customer visit or conference, uh, we bring them in um, uh, from time to time, uh, even though they are remote. Are remote. So like, our, like a trade shows or um, uh, key customer visits or key customer workshops, um, in that case, you know, um, they should be a part of uh, all these activities uh, when we are doing it, uh, you know, together. Ravi, 
congrats on your success and the continued growth. This is a great story. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you, David. Um, Really great to be here and uh, it was uh, awesome chatting with you. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.